This is the Mahabharata Podcast, episode 84, The Book of the Women. Last time, the colossal violence of the vengeance-fueled war finally let up a bit when Ashvataman was spared his life and allowed to go free to live out his 3,000-year curse. I seem to recall from other versions of the epic that Drona's son was cursed to live until the end of the Kali Yuga, or even until the next Golden Age. But if the 3,000-year curse is to be believed, then it is possible that he will die any day now. Following the chastisement of Ashvataman, Krishna explained the boy's actions by blaming Shiva. As a sort of example of how crazy and violent Shiva could be, he told the story known as Daksha's Sacrifice. Hopefully you've checked out Ben Collins' podcast about Daksha's Sacrifice. That would be the version presented in the Vishnu Purana. If you're familiar with that version of the story, you'll probably have noticed that the version of the Vishnu Purana is more like a fable than the version we get here. In that version, Daksha seems like a regular Brahmin, who has married his daughter to a troublesome sadhu, Shiva that is, and when he fails to treat his son-in-law with due respect, Shiva wreaks havoc on his father-in-law's get-together. In our version, which I believe is far older, Shiva seems more like a force of nature, literally. In fact, the best explanation I can come up with is that this is a primitive description of some half-remembered science experiment. Imagine if you were a physicist trying to explain a quantum mechanics experiment to a primitive group of hunters. You would have very few common points of reference. Just like the legend of the Amrit seems to describe the precession of the equinoxes, I get the impression that in the story of Daksha's sacrifice, Shiva is some kind of force of nature that, if not taken into consideration, can destabilize the very fabric of reality. What has happened over time is that we have lost the key to really understanding this myth. For centuries now, Western scientists have given the impression that we've nearly figured everything out. If we just had a couple more equations, we could explain all physical phenomena. But on the contrary, I think we barely understand anything yet, and that may be why Duxia's sacrifice still sounds like a quaint fable. Perhaps one day, when we truly understand the nature of time and space, we'll realize this story is an allegory and a warning about respecting the fundamental forces of nature. But until then, we'll continue to tell this story as if it were a gripping yarn about a stuffy Brahmin whose sadhu son-in-law crashes his party. Getting back to the story, we left off at the end of the Saptika Parva. The next book, called the Shri Parva, or the Book of the Women, opens with Dhritarashtra lamenting his misfortune. We are pretty familiar with Dhritarashtra's laments by now, and Sanjay's reply was the usual scolding he gave whenever the old guy started feeling sorry for himself. The king's half-brother, Vidor, was there, and he also gave a philosophical consolation to his king. In short, he said that our birth is a tragedy in itself, and that we enter the world covered in filth and burdened with all the sins of our past lives. We then get distracted by our senses and the temptations of the world until we get so deluded that, despite our constant suffering, we fear and dread death as the worst possible punishment, when in fact it is to our greatest relief when we leave this mortal coil. Vidor then gave an interesting parable of a Brahmin who got lost in the woods. This forest was teeming with dangerous animals, and as it was growing dark, the Brahmin began to panic. He began to run aimlessly, with the hope of stumbling out of the woods by accident. Then he noticed nets on either side, like hunters drive their prey, and at the end of the path stood a frightful woman, arms outstretched to capture him. Behind him, he saw five-headed snakes, but before he could change course, he fell into a pit. As he plummeted, he got entangled in creepers and vines, until he found himself dangling head down in the open pit. Below him, he saw a giant snake and an elephant that had six faces and twelve feet. So there he hung, with no way to get out of that predicament. 
he considered himself fortunate when he found a honeycomb hanging nearby. Vidor says that despite the fact that the honey induced a horrendous thirst, the Brahmin continued to eat it. Vidor said, unsatisfied after repeated drafts, the Brahmin desired more, and even then, the man did not become indifferent to life. Even there, he continued to hope for deliverance. While black and white rats gnawed at the roots of the tree, there was great fear in that forest, fear of the snakes, fear of the giant woman, fear of the elephant, and fear of the bees. But despite that man's awful predicament, he never for a moment lost his desire for preserving his life. Deuterostra listened to this and said, Wow, where is that place? That sounds terrible. Why would a guy want to go on living like that? If it is possible to rescue this man, I sure would like to help. Vidor answered, This is a parable for those who are wise in the Dharma of salvation. What we described as a terrible forest is in fact this world that we all live in. The beasts of prey are the diseases that we are all prone to. The monstrous woman is old age and decrepitude, which relentlessly destroys our looks and health. That which I described as the pit is the human body, and the snake at the bottom is time, which eventually destroys all things. The vines and creepers that hold our friends suspended in the air are the desires and attachments that carry us through each day. The elephant represents the year, with six seasons and twelve months while the rats are the minutes and seconds that continually undermine and weaken all things. The swarming bees are our desires, while the honey represents the physical pleasures that are to be had in this life. The wise know this to be true about life, and it is through this understanding that they free themselves from its bonds. Dhritarashtra said, Wow, you are really good. I'm feeling much better now. Now tell me more. Vidor went on to describe the human body as being like a chariot, with the senses of the horses, and our soul is the driver. Our reins are made up by our knowledge, reason, and understanding. The journey we are taking has as its destination moksha, or enlightenment, and each leg of the journey is a single lifetime on the earth. Just as a journey may require multiple stopovers, some people who are more focused on their destination keep their horses reined in and reach their objective with as few stops as possible. The unwise allow their horses to wander any direction that pleases them, and they end up taking a very prolonged journey, spending countless lifetimes. Some poor souls can get so caught up in the attractions of mortal existence that they literally go in circles, spending endless lifetimes without making any progress at all to their destination. While all this philosophy was soothing to the king, it also gave him an idea. He seized a sword and made to kill himself, saying, You're right. The world is an unstable realm of suffering, and my suffering shall not end until my life is terminated. This time, it was Vyasa who intervened with words of wisdom. He said, My son, you are a wise man, so you should know better than to kill yourself. You know perfectly well that all things must come to an end, and the destruction of your lineage was inevitable, so do not be sad. After all, fate cannot be denied. Vyasa then reported on an incident he had witnessed some time back when visiting the court of the god Indra. He said that he and all the other rishis, with Narada at their head, had gathered there, and that the earth goddess was also there. She petitioned the gods, reminding them of their promise to help rid her of the asuras who had incarnated on her surface. Vyasa said that Vishnu had assured her that it would not be much longer until the earth was cleansed in the form of a great war. Vyasa explained that it was for this purpose that Duryodhana's soul was created out of a portion of Kali, and was destined for causing universal slaughter. Many other kings also were born with the purpose of destruction. Vyasa said, It is their own fault that your sons have been killed. 
Do not blame the Pandavas for what has happened. On the contrary, they did their utmost to avoid it. The sage Narada had warned him back at his Rajasuya ceremony at Indraprastha that the Pandavas and Karavas would one day destroy each other. But even knowing this to be inevitable, Yudhishthira still underwent exile and privation in order to avoid this fate. Vyasa then exhorted the blind king to cast off his grief and to embrace Yudhishthira. It says that Dhritarashtra gave up with his intention to kill himself, and then Vyasa vanished. Seeing his brother still burning with grief for his sons, Vidor gave him another dose of philosophy. He said, The last thing you should be doing is grieving for your sons. You should be happy for them. They are already and certainly in paradise. You could spend your whole life giving to Brahmins and doing penance and still not be sure of heaven, but to die in glorious battles to win a first-class ticket to paradise. If you're going to have worries, then worry for the living. After considering this, Dhritarashtra pulled himself together and ordered up his chariot. Standing up, he ordered, Bring here Gandhari and all the Kuru women. Bring Kunti also and all her women as well. While the king stood mounted in his car, Gandhari arrived. Soon, Kunti also arrived and the two women commenced to wailing. Meanwhile, thousands of wailing mothers and widows streamed out of the city, their hair in disarray, bereft of ornaments or jewelry, each clad in a single white cloth. While Vidor did his best to comfort his two sisters-in-law, the king led the procession of widows out of the city, heading for the battlefield. Behind the women followed the Vaishya merchants and craftsmen of the city, as well as the Shudra servants to the Kuru household. When they were about two miles out of the city, the king encountered the three surviving Karvas, Kripa, Kritavarman, and Ashvataman. Clearly, this must be before Ashvataman was cursed. The three warriors informed the king that his sons had all fallen and been vanquished. They then confessed that the previous night they had killed the Pandavas' sons and allies in their sleep, and now they were being pursued by the Pandavas. When the king gave them leave, the three split up. Kripa went home to Hastinapur, and Kritavarman also went back to his kingdom. Ashvataman left for Vyasa's ashram, which is where we found him last time, and he got cursed to roam the earth. The party of mourners then continued on their journey to Kurukshetra, following the course of the river Ganga. It was along the banks of that sacred river that Yudhishthira intercepted his uncle. Presumably by now, the Pandavas were returning from the scene of Ashvataman's downfall. It says they received news of Dhritarashtra's procession and endeavored to join them. When the mob of widows cast eyes on the Pandavas, who had been the instruments of their husband's destruction, they all began wailing and crying at once. The brothers ran this gauntlet and then greeted their uncle. It was only with great reluctance that the king embraced his nephew Yudhishthira. When it came Bhima's turn to embrace the king, Krishna prudently took the Pandava aside and replaced him with an iron statue. In his pent-up rage, Dhritarashtra gave the statue a bear hug that shattered it into pieces, injuring himself in the process. While Sanjay tended to his wounds, the king began to repent of what he thought he'd done. Krishna then let him know that it had only been done to his statue. He said, I understand that it was from grief that you did this, but you know that killing Bhima would not bring back your sons. This brought the king back to his senses, and he embraced Bhima and then Arjun without further incident. Meanwhile, Yudhishthira greeted the queen Gandhari. Before she could say anything, Vyasa appeared and warned the old lady not to try anything. Gandhari said, It's okay. I don't blame the Pandavas for winning the war. In fact, every morning of the war, my son asked me for my blessing, and I reminded him that where righteousness is, there is victory. No, what really gets me mad is that Bhima had to cheat in order to win. He broke the rules. 
Bhima spoke up in his own defense, saying, I'm sorry, but I only did it out of self-defense. Your son had cheated to vanquish us before, and he had cheated us many times since. Had he killed me, just imagine what terrible things would have happened. For there to ever be peace, Duryodhana needed to be vanquished by whatever means possible. Gandhari accepted this line of argument, saying, Well, what you say is true, but what about drinking Dushasan's blood? That was inappropriate. Bhima said, Yes, you're right. That was not proper. But in fact, I didn't really drink it. I just had his blood on my hands and acted it out to scare your sons. Besides, I had sworn an oath to do it, and if I had not fulfilled my oath, no one would take me seriously. Considering that you never restrained your sons from their evil deeds, don't blame me. Just then, Dhritarashtra intervened and said, You should curse me instead. I am the cause of your son's deaths. Gandhari tried to quell her anger, but threw a gap in her blindfold. Remember, she covered her eyes permanently when she married the blind king. She was able to see Yudhishthira's toe. And her angry gaze was enough to roast the Pandava's formerly perfect toenail. Yudhishthira hopped back while his brothers tried to duck behind Krishna out of fear of her wrath. Meanwhile, Kunti had been trying to comfort Draupadi for the loss of her sons, so Gandhari, who knew well the feeling, turned her attention to the Panchala princess. The sorrowful procession then continued on its way to the battlefield. The blind king and queen knew they'd arrived at their destination when the widows first caught sight of the devastation and let up a fearsome wailing and weeping at the prospect of so many fallen warriors already being eaten by vultures and hyenas. But the women folk, having lost all self-control in their grief, spread out through the carnage, digging through the body parts and gore in search of their dead husbands and sons. Some women found the heads of their loved ones and then set off in search of their bodies. A macabre scene broke out as these maddened widows attempted to reassemble the bodies from the piles of limbs and torsos lying all around. As for Gandhari, it seems that the bodies of her sons were fetched for her one by one. Specifically addressing Krishna, perhaps as a reprimand, she lamented each of her sons in turn. She then pointed out others of the more significant victims of Krishna's machinations, including those killed by Ashvataman in his night raid. She mentioned Virata, whose corpse was already half-eaten, and directed Krishna's attention to the Matsya women gathered around their Matsya men slain corpses. Then she described Draupadi, who at that very moment had Abhimanyu's severed head in her lap as she stroked his bloody hair. As for Karna, she said that he was mostly eaten. There wasn't much left of his corpse for his women to grieve over. Gandhari reminds us that her one daughter had been married to Jayadrata of Sindh, who had abducted Draupadi and been killed by Arjun in episode 73. Now, she said, Dushala is running madly about, searching for Jayadrata's severed head. She went on to eulogize the greatest of the fallen, starting with Bhishma, then Shalya, Bhagadatta, Drona, and Bhudishravas. She even spared a few words for her odious brother Shakuni, although mostly she worried that even now, in heaven, he might be sowing discord among the dead. Finally, after having gone through an impressive list of the fallen, the queen collapsed in her grief. As she sobbed, she castigated Krishna as the architect of the slaughter. She said, The Kauravas and the Pandavas have been wiped out, and while this happened, what did you do to prevent it? You had great armies, plus your eloquence and your other abilities. Yet you did nothing. You were indifferent to this great carnage, so you should bear the fruits of that indifference. Therefore, she said, I curse you. Since you could have stopped this massacre at any time, but you didn't, so shall you be the slayer of your own kinfolk. Furthermore, thirty-six years from today, after having caused the extinction of all your friends and relatives, 
you shall perish by disgusting means in the forest. And then your women, deprived of their sons, fathers, and husbands, shall weep and cry, just as do these ladies of the Bhadatas. Krishna heard the queen and smiled. He said, You know, it's not easy to kill these Vrishni relatives of mine, but I've been trying to figure out just how to do that. Your curse, my lady, will help me greatly in accomplishing this task. There are few people left who can kill the Yadavas, but by your curse they shall kill one another. Then Krishna got more stern. He said, Now pull yourself together. Don't let this grief consume you. After all, you bear as much blame for this as anyone. All his life you coddled your son, applauding his wickedness as if it were virtue. For a woman of your caste, bearing children is a sacrifice and a penance. The cow bears children for carrying burdens. The shudra has children to create more servants. Vaishya women do it to increase the number of herders. But a princess brings forth sons so that they may be killed in warfare. Poor Gandhari was not at all happy with Krishna's response, but there was no point in arguing, so she kept silent. Dhritarashtra broke the uncomfortable silence with a question. He asked, Tell me, son of Pandu, how many have been killed and how many escaped with their lives? Yudhishthira replied, One billion six hundred and sixty million and twenty thousand have died in this battle. Two hundred and forty thousand one hundred and sixty-five survived in one way or another. Dhritarashtra then wanted to know the fate of those who had died. The Pandava said that for those who had met death cheerfully, they now frolic with Indra and the gods. Those who died honorably but unwillingly went to the realm of the Gandharvas. The warriors who died while running away or begging for quarter are now in the heaven of the Guyakas. He said, As for those high-souled warriors who regarded flight from battle shameful and chose to fight even when unarmed or outnumbered, they have assumed light bodies and attained the realms of Brahma. All the rest now rest with our ancestors. Dhritarashtra seemed a bit suspicious of his nephew's certitude. He asked, By what ability are you able to see into the higher realms and tell us this? Yudhishthira replied, Well, remember when you forced me to live in the wilderness? During that time, the Rishi Lomasha granted me the boon of spiritual vision. Dhritarashtra accepted that answer and then deferred to Yudhishthira on handling the dead. The Pandava ordered the priests to perform funerary rites for the dead, whether they had any kin left alive or not, and a vast cremation fire was prepared. The sons and heroes from both sides were each cremated with all due ceremony, while the unidentified masses were burned up in a handful of enormous fires. When this cleanup was complete, the mourners then journeyed back to the river Ganges. There, at the edge of India's most sacred river, the mourners performed the water oblations and rituals in honor of the dead. As the mothers performed these rites, Kunti came forward and joined them. After all, she too had lost a son in this war. She then directed her sons to do the same for their fallen brother. She said, Now make your offerings to your eldest brother, who was born of me by the sun god and resembled his father in splendor. It looks like this was news to Yudhishthira, even though a few minutes ago he was boasting about his clairvoyance. Feeling both grief and surprise, he asked, how could you conceal from us that he who resembled a god on earth was your son? And now, by concealing this from us, we're all ruined. To know we had a hand in the death of our eldest brother grieves me worse than the death of our sons. Had we only known the truth, we would have welcomed our brother, and together nothing would have been impossible. And this terrible carnage would never have happened. Yudhishthira then joined up with Karna's bereaved wives and relatives, and together they performed the funerary rites for his fallen brother. This ends as three parva, so we'll stop for now. 
Next time, we'll start Book 12, called the Shanti Parva, or the Book of Peace. Thanks for listening.